You're listening to WNHH 103.5 FM Community Radio. This is The Table Underground, and I'm your host, Tegan Engel. We're digging into inspiring stories of food, radical love, and creative social justice. The community at Soulfire Farm in upstate New York is committed to uprooting racism and injustice in the food system, and they draw on deep wisdom from African heritage practices to do it. In her new book, Farming While Black, Leah Penniman, co-founder of Soulfire Farm, has created a profound resource of science, history, practice, healing, and inspiration for black and brown people and their allies to create transformational change and find liberation on land. Leah and her family are dear friends of mine, and I serve on the board of Soulfire Farm. I felt a combination of exhilaration in recording this interview and a feeling that there was no way to cover the massive number of topics woven through this book and the work of this community. At the core is the African and indigenous principle that all living things are interconnected and that true health, true freedom, true happiness can only be found when we work in balance with each other and everything around us. Farming While Black beautifully illustrates how to put this principle into practice through farming, community building, internal and communal healing, and the decolonization of the world. In an era where black communities suffer disproportionately from illnesses related to lack of access of fresh food and healthy natural ecosystems, where violence and discrimination have led to the decline in the number of black farmers to less than 2%, and where 85% of the people working the land are exploited Latinx indigenous migrant workers, there is much work to be done. Farming While Black and the circles of people and communities that contributed to the wisdom in its pages are great nourishment for the returning generation of black farmers and people committed to building a just and life-giving food system. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation and it inspires you to learn more and get involved in making change. Hi, Leah. Hi, Tegan. Thanks for making time to talk today. Thank you. It's awesome to be talking to a longtime friend and supporter of the project. Yeah. So can you give us an overview of what is the work that Soulfire Farm does? Sure. Um, so Soulfire Farm started in 2010 with the mission to end racism and injustice in the food system, which is a big mission, but there's three basic things we do. Uh, one is we raise food using sustainable Afro-Indigenous methods and box that all up every Wednesday and bring it to about 400 people in the community, many of whom are living under food apartheid, meaning they don't have a lot of money and they don't have access to fresh, healthy food. So that's delivered right to folks' doorsteps. And that's the foundation. That's the most important of the three things things. Uh, the second thing is that we run training programs for Black, Indigenous, Latinx, and Asian farmer activist builders um, so that they can level up those hard skills that you need to run a land-based business. And the third thing is reparations work. Reparations means repair. It's about returning the land resources that were stolen from our ancestors back to their descendants. And we do that through regional and national policy work, uh, the creation of a land trust and our reparations map. Mm, excellent. So I am so extremely excited and happy to be sitting here with you with this book, Farming While Black, Soulfire Farms Practical Guide to Liberation on Land, and to see it in the in the paper flesh. <laughs> um, and I'm so proud of you that you created this and with all of the amazing people who who helped to bring this about. And I wanted to start our conversation today 
rooted in asking about the ancestors, since I know that is such a grounding piece of your work. And when you open this book, the first page is this gorgeous painting done by your sister, Naima. And I'm wondering if you could describe this painting and what the story is behind this. Sure. Um, So the painting is of a grandmother who is braiding the seeds of cowpea, millet, sorghum, black rice, and other African indigenous crops into her hair before being forced to board uh, transatlantic slave ships and facing an uncertain future. And the, the picture shows the vision of what this grandmother believes is possible. Um, she hasn't given up on her descendants and she believes in a future of tilling and reaping and sustenance on the land. And to me, this painting and this true story, which is an, a story of our ancestors, represents not just the seeds that we carried with us in the journey, but also all of the indigenous wisdom about how to be in right relationship with the land and with human community. Uh, our knowledge of how to test soil with our taste buds and our knowledge of making vermicompost and having collective work parties and economic systems for sharing you know how to have polycultures and raised beds so all of this wisdom about right relationship with the earth came with us and of course we know throughout the history of colonization that the empire tried to stamp it out but our ancestors believed that in a future where we would reconnect to that indigenous wisdom yeah all the things that you just mentioned, if you had just said those words, just polyculture, um, <laughs> soil testing, like all these things, most Americans would associate those things with with white agricultural practice. And it's such a core piece of this book that you're actually bringing in this historical context of how these things are really rooted in, in African agricultural systems. And... Can you talk a little bit about at what point in your journey in life you started to learn about that and understand that and why? Sure. Um, So I've been farming since I was 16 years old, so over 20 years now. And while I deeply loved farming as a teenager and, and felt that it was my life's path as an integration between environmental stewardship and social justice, uh, as I started to attend uh, farming conferences and read books about farming and and plan my future in this career, I really struggled because I was seeing, uh, you know, only books by and lectures by and workshops by mostly white men in the, in the sustainable farming world. And so I started to question whether I really had a place in that movement and whether I was a traitor to my people and my ancestors uh, in choosing a life on land. So it wasn't until I met Karen Washington at a, a conference called the Northeast Organic Farming Association annual summer conference. I had gone around with these little slips of paper and gave them to everyone who appeared, you know, black, Latinx, Asian, indigenous, and said, let's meet at one o'clock under this tree and talk about what it's like to be people of color in organic farming. And she came and she said, you know, child, don't worry. Like our ancestors have been doing this. We're going to have our own conference one day. We're going to bring our people back to the land. Um, and she she wrote the um, the forward for the book, and and she's become a dear friend and mentor and and colleague and collaborator. But that moment was a turning point for me because I developed a hypothesis that we belonged and that we had contributed as a people to um, to sustainable agriculture. And it didn't actually take a lot of research to discover that was true. You know, for example, things like the CSA community supported agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, 
or even organic farming. We're told that's from the Rodale Institute, when in fact, both of those came out of Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, which is a, a black land grant institution. Uh, and the list goes on. But in writing the book, it was really affirming to find historical examples time and again of the contributions of our ancestors to environmental stewardship and healthy agriculture. Yeah. yeah. I think that's one of the things that is so powerful about the work that you do through the Black and Latinx Farmers Immersion, through the public speaking that you do and through this book is that you're not just saying like, this is what we do at Soul Fire Farm, but you're rooting it in this historical context, which I think for people of color who hear it, make it makes it so grounded and so important and true. And also for white people or people who are like, why are you doing this thing around black farming? Like, you're just a farmer. And you're like, no, this is actually really important. Um, and it's woven throughout this whole book. And throughout it, you have these sections about uplift, which I really <laughs> love. Can you talk about why you put that into the book? Sure. So, so this book, and I want to shout out Robin Wall Kimmerer for the idea of a book having three strands of a braid. So the, mm. the theme of the braid runs through, but one of them is the story of Soulfire, which originally was what the publisher asked me to write. But like you mentioned, Tegan, I felt like that was uh, too narrow and self-centering to just write a story about one institution when really we are a reflection of the work of our ancestors and the whole movement. So that is one strand. There's some fun stories in there. Another is how to, you know, how to set up your farm, how to access credit, save seed, you know, all of these practical things, because I think that's something that we can sometimes lose in the movement and the left is the survival programs that were advocated by the Black Panther mm. Party. You know, we can't just have a platform and do all this political organizing without really rooting it in a tangible contribution to the survival of our people. Um, and then the third is uplift. And that's the anthropological historical examples of how our folks contributed to this knowledge. Um, so, for example, in the chapter that talks about remediating degraded soils and taking lead out of urban soils, fixing eroded soils, we uplift a number of ancestral practices and crops. So one of them is pelargonium or scented geranium, which is an African flower that's a hyper accumulator of toxic heavy metals and so can help actually restore the soil. Um, in that same chapter, we uplift the Ovambo people of what is now uh, Namibia, because they created some of the first raised bed systems. So they, they had these, you know, 10 yard by five yard rectangular mounds that helped them concentrate fertility and manage water flow. And that's where our raised beds today, you know, come from. They come mm -hmm. from these ancestral technologies. So it's very important to give credit where it's due and not just pretend that all of these things arose ahistorically. Mm -hmm. How do you notice um, people who come and learn at Soulfire? How does, how does this experience of learning about the historical context affect them? You know, I, I'm astounded that there continues to be such profound transformation and magic time and again. You know, I keep waiting for the immersion program we have where folks are like, oh, that was nice. I learned some stuff, whatever, you know. <laughs> but <laughs> I think because it is rooted in a returning to something that we long for, you know, something that maybe we didn't even realize that mm. we had lost, um, remembering what we didn't know we'd forgotten, there, there's a deeper healing and connection Um to that knowledge and in the space. So people talk about, you know, this is what it sounds like, feels like, tastes like to be free. Mm. Or, you know, I, 
if if resilience were a cup, mine would be overflowing. So I think that added component of like psycho-spiritual healing and emotional connection really comes from the fact that it's not just cation exchange capacity or how to interpret a soil test, but really like tasting the soil and remembering that it's actually the Yoruba people, you know, in Nigeria who developed this method of tasting and touching soil to know its fertility and to connect to that, you know, connects to something deeper in ourselves beyond just our minds. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And this, um, the spiritual component of the work that you do is so profound and important. And I wonder if you could talk about the importance for black people in particular, but people of color in healing their relationship with the land and why that is such an, a big piece of what you do through this work. Absolutely. I mean, there's so much to that about healing our relationship to land. I think on the one hand, most of us ancestrally come from land-centered spiritual traditions or nature-centered spiritual traditions, and our ways have been so demonized um, by Christianity you know, and other colonizer religions that sometimes we get confused and think that our people were actually wrong, you know, and the only way to uh, live a life of dignity or modern life is to adapt colonizer ways, colonizer religion. So that's that's one level of estrangement. I think also estrangement from land comes from, uh, as Chris Bolden Newsom said, the land was the scene of the crime. And so sometimes because we experience all this oppression on land and that oppression is truly inherited, you know, it affects our gene gene expression then we conflate the land with the oppression. And so there's this trigger response to being out on land at all. And I think that we lose a lot. We don't just lose the material ability to produce sustenance for our communities when we're disconnected, but I think we also lose a very important source of wisdom. You know, our ancestors and contemporaries in less colonized cultures know that when you have direct contact with the earth, then your ancestors can speak to you more easily. Um, you know, then the Orisha can speak to you more easily. And because I'm a science nerd, I think a lot of it, uh, I think about it a lot in terms of things like mycelium, you know, so trees communicate with each other through networks of fungal hyphae. So they give each other sugars and minerals and messages and warnings, and they help mm-hmm. each other, even if they're not in the same family. And, you know, I believe that if you touch a tree or you touch the hyphae, then you're then you get information about how to live in human community. And when we have layers of concrete between us and the earth, those messages can't get through as easily. So we lose a lot. And it's imperative, I think, um, for us to reconnect to that source of wisdom. Yeah. There is so much in what you just said, but I want to come back to this piece around um, the land being the scene of the crime Mm. so that people who don't necessarily understand that get it. So for black folks whose images of agriculture and land are slavery and sharecropping, that the idea of coming and doing farming as like a choice for your um, for your profession or as something that you just want to do at all is can be really traumatic because of that that connection with those images. And a lot of what you do is kind of try to um, help people heal that relationship. Can you talk a little bit about what some of the things are that you do to help people go from having that reaction of like, I am not doing that. That's like what slavery is about to getting to a place where they feel that being on land and working on land is about liberation Mm. and about freedom. Yeah. Thank you for pausing us there because I'm not sure everyone will even know that it's, it's more than just slavery in terms of when we say the land is the scene of the crime, because while there were hundreds of years of, of forced labor that were brutal beyond what most of us can imagine, um, 
uh, didn't end in 1865. So there were years of what what was called convict leasing um, under the Black Code. So there were laws that criminalized blackness. Uh, things like vagrancy and loitering came onto the books for the first time. And that just means standing around or not having a job. And so the prisons filled with black folks uh, who were then leased back to the plantation. Then there were decades of sharecropping and tenant farming. And our ancestors who had the amazing, you know, fortitude and courage and skill to save enough money to buy their own land were then further terrorized by white supremacist groups for the audacity to get you know, off of the plantation. And so there were over 4,000 lynchings in the South, many of which targeted uh, black landowners. And the the Great Migration was really a refugee crisis. It was people fleeing that violence. And so there's, you know, some of this is very recent too, you know, 1960s, 1970s. So people are, have a visceral um, memory of that trauma. And I think that What's beautiful about what we are blessed to do at Soulfire is we don't have to do anything to convince people to come back to the land. The land has been calling us home. And so it's really about making the introduction in a safe space so that folks um, so that folks can hear the land offering her healing and hearing that call. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this this diverges from the science a little bit, but I have the I have a feeling or a belief that if things are too difficult to do, if a lot of obstacles are arising, that's not really what we're supposed to be doing. And so the fact that all of our training programs have a long waiting list, now multi-year waiting list, and people continue to experience really positive transformational um, change and then invite others and that it's almost taking care of itself in that way mm-hmm. uh, reinforces that understanding that, you know, that this is something our ancestors in the land are asking us to do and not something we're trying to force to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a myth that our, our people don't want to have anything to do with the land. It's like, otherwise they wouldn't be coming here to learn <laughs> about farming. Yeah. So since we started talking about the spirit part, maybe we can just talk a little bit more of that. And then I want to get into some of the science geeky stuff. Um so part of what's in this book is is around this healing part. So you have like knowledge that you're giving people and putting it in in ancestral and historical context. And then you also have things around um, herbal baths and prayer and African rooted um, spiritual traditions and traditions in other in other cultures as well. Um, can you give some examples of some things that you do with people through the Black and Latinx Farmers Immersion or things that are in the book that help with the spiritual side of that? connecting with the land and healing. So it's become harder to articulate because the spiritual component of our work has become so integrated that it's mm-hmm. hard to, you know, think of it separately. Uh, something that my mentors in Ghana shared with me years back, the queen mothers who, who are my spiritual teachers, they said, Amida day, is it really true that in the United States people plant seeds and they don't pour any libation and they don't sing and they don't dance and they don't pray and just expect it to grow, <laughs> like totally incredulous that we would farm in that way. Um, and yeah, they said, that's why you're sick. You know, that's why you're sick is because you treat the earth as a material thing and you don't treat the earth as a sovereign living being um, worthy of reciprocity. And so what that looks like for us to honor the earth as a sovereign living being is a number of things like one is asking for permission you know so before we cut down a bunch of trees and put up staff cabins we make prayers we make offerings we cast ob which is a divination tool to see if the forest consents to that change um 
Before every harvest this year, our amazing farm team has been going down to the milpa, which is where our maize and beans and squash, which are very sacred crops to us, are planted. And they make offering uh, before the harvest every Tuesday morning, which has been incredible. Uh, and just the third thing that I'll mention is we have a practice where anytime we're at the junction of life and death, it's important to do a bath with herbs uh, to mark that transition. And so on the days when we are harvesting chickens and you know providing that meat for the community, when that's all finished and cleaned up and done, we go down by the pond and we use you know rue and holy basil and other herbs, other cleansing herbs, and wash each other, wash ourselves, and offer prayers to the Orisha uh, for that sustenance and also also to mark that we're like putting down our knives for the day, you know, and, and moving into a different energetic space. And that's been just profoundly beautiful. The last one that we did, uh, a number of children decided to participate. And so we had, you know, little three-year-old Olomina, like raising her arms to Oya mm. and <laughs> receiving the waters. And it mm. was, it was deeply meaningful mm. for me to be part of that. Yeah. That's wonderful. Um, can you talk a little specifically about Orisha Oko and Nana Buku and so people hear like who these these spiritual guiding forces of your farm are? Sure. Um, so of course, all Lua, all Orisha are present, but the ones some that I have a very close relationship with include Nana Buku, who is the grandmother of the universe and her energy dwells in the waters in the forest. And we have really heavy clay soils and lots of swamps and marshes and ponds. And so her energy is alive and present here. She also dwells in the moon. Um, another Orisha, or call, uh, Orisha I also called Lua in, in Haitian Vodou. Uh, so I use those terms interchangeably. But another is Azaka, Cousine mm -hmm. Azaka, who is the Lua of agriculture. And of course, because we're a farm, uh, we spend a lot of time with Azaka, who's who's seen as a peer, really, and is addressed affectionately and as a member of the community and doesn't like hierarchy and doesn't like police and doesn't like colonization and so <laughs> gets along well here. Uh, but we've developed a, a community shrine uh, right outside of the, our main home and education center. And so when folks come to the land for a program, we often give uh, we often work with them to offer some maize or some water or rum to Azaka and, and welcome them to, to the land in that way. Mm. And how do you, um, you know, I know you're drawing on these traditions through like the Yoruba tradition, your Haitian ancestors, also through your connection with other land-based, like through Judaism, through other land-based um, traditions. But how does it work when people come here who maybe aren't religious at all or who aren't connected to any of these kind of indigenous practices? Yeah, that's such a great question because we want to be really careful not to impose our spiritual beliefs on anyone else or make people feel uncomfortable. Um, and so, you know, for many years, everything we offer here was very secular and only because of folks asking for that spiritual connection to land and some tools to deepen that connection have we been more explicit or more public about what we're doing. But we're very conscious to make space for everyone to offer their spiritual ways or no spiritual ways at all. So, for example, before each meal, you know, we offer participants the opportunity to share a poem, a song, a prayer, whatever it may be from their tradition. Um, and one great thing about uh, Haitian voodoo in particular is that it is a religion that's birthed out of making space for everyone's religions. Mm. Uh, so inherent in it uh, is Catholicism and Islam 
and Yoruba and many other practices because Haiti was a place where over 26 ethnic groups came together. Mm. So, you know, for example, during the most recent immersion that we did, which was totally in Spanish, the Virgen de Guadalupe was like on the shrine, you know, <laughs> right next to my beads from Ghana. And and folks have given us really positive affirmation that they feel that there's there's space for them and that um, they're certainly invited to participate in these rituals, but they're not required to. Yeah. I love, I mean, people might be listening to this and thinking like, why in the world are you talking about <laughs> spirit and agriculture? But you said earlier this piece around um, how within the practice that you do here of farming, that the spiritual component is so integrated in. And that is very true in indigenous practices around the world, that if you ask people what the name of their religion is, there is no name for the religion because it's just part of how they are in community and in relationship with everything, with each other, with the land. And um, I think that that piece of what you're talking about around how agriculture happens here and and both the science of it as well as like the human interaction with nature is all integrated. And one of the things that I loved reading in this book is all of the details about things like soil remediation and soil conservation. And I know that you're a science nerd and a science teacher <laughs> on top of being a farmer and, and spiritual activist. Can you um, talk a little bit about some of the science things, um, especially around soil development? Cause I think Typically, a lot of people of color are having to garden in cities or farm places where the land is not in good condition, either like you have started with here with mm -hmm. clay or that it's really, really contaminated. And can you talk about kind of how you do that from a science farming standpoint and what some of the um, ancestral wisdom is that you pulled on to, to learn those practices? Oh, this is fun. Yeah, I'm a super science and soil nerd. Something that was really fun to learn about Dr. George Washington Carver in Blessed Memory of Tuskegee Institute was how much he believed in regenerative soil uh, science. Um, he's often known or remembered for the peanut and all the inventions related to the peanut. But the reason he was uh, obsessed with the peanut is because it's a legume and, and it has the ability to fix nitrogen, which is the process of taking uh, elemental nitrogen out of the atmosphere, you know, combining it with other elements in order to form an organic compound that can be absorbed by plants. And nitrogen is the limiting factor in soil health in most in most parts of the world. And so that's a huge uh, ability that these plants have. They collaborate with rhizobial bacteria in order to make it happen. So what, what George Washington Carver did is he told all the farmers, like, you need to stop doing monocrop of cotton and tobacco and instead rotate through the cow pea, ro rotate through the peanut, all of these legumes so that you put life back into the soil. And then when you are finished at the end of the season, don't rest, like go to the swamps, go to the forest, rake up leaves, pull the muck out of the ponds and make compost piles and spread compost all over your soil. And people thought he was pretty out of his mind, right? But of course now what do we do? Like we make compost piles and we use cover crops and all of these things. And so he was very much the, um, the ancestor who's most inspiring to me in terms of my learning on remediating soils because when we first came uh, to this land here in Grafton you know the soil was so eroded that we only had about seven inches of topsoil and then hard pan gray clay underneath like you could not even put a pitchfork through mm. and we had just come from an urban area where the soils had so much lead that our daughter um, was lead poisoned and so we're we were motivated and inspired around healing soil and had read a lot of reports that Almost all the good land is like 
taken up essentially. So if we're going to feed 9 billion people by 2050, we have to we have to start healing damaged soils. So one of the things that we did, certainly we cover crops, obviously, and we composted, but we use these no-till methods. And this comes from the Ovambo raised beds where you are trying to find as much organic matter as possible and just mound that up on the soil. And we used leaves, uh, rotten straw, compost, paper, and over the years, we're able to build, you know, over 20 inches of topsoil. And in the process, not only do we provide for ourselves in terms of food, but we're capturing carbon from the atmosphere and and reversing climate change and using the soil as a as a reservoir for carbon. Mm. Yeah, I saw in the book that you talk also about um, this practice in Haiti um, Mm. of how because all the trees were cut down in Haiti from first the Spanish and then the French for Mm -hmm. exploiting the land and the people and. Can you explain this process that they had of actually keeping the land from eroding and and kind of regenerating the land? Yeah. So in Haiti, which is where my maternal ancestors are from and where uh, my sister and I and other Haitian Americans have been working since the earthquake every year uh, to collaborate with the farmers and heal the land. They experienced a great tragedy because after winning their independence in 1804, France and the rest of the Western world wanted to punish Haiti. And so... um, made them pay reparations for their freedom. And they had to cut down all of their trees in order to remit that 8 million francs to France. Um, and the result is is that the soil washed into the ocean. So the farmers that we're working with in Comier um, have made use of this amazing grass called vetiver, which is fast growing and deep rooted and really tenacious. And so when you plant strips of vetiver along the hillsides, it traps the soil long enough that you can put a tree right behind it and the tree won't wash down the hill. The tree will have a chance to get established. And so we worked with those farmers to plant a few thousand trees on top of the thousands that they'd already planted. We certainly weren't, you know, catalyzing that. That was something that they were doing, Um, you know, mango and cherry and moringa trees that can provide income as well as start to restore the soils. That's great. One of the other things that you talk about in this book is the model, all these different models for community building and for how people can come together so that it's not just people on their own trying to change the world and start becoming a farmer. Can you talk about um, some of those models for community building um, that you're trying to share with people through this book? Absolutely. At the center of Afro-Indigenous cosmology, there is a we, there isn't an I. And so we tried to weave that throughout the book in terms of thinking about business structure being cooperative, you know, land ownership structure, how we access money and resources, you know, working together. And it's not easy because we've all been, many of us have been socialized in a really individualistic culture. And the laws that we have in this country are set up you know, for people to own things by themselves and do things by themselves. And so it's a little bit of a dance, um, but I wanted to offer creative ways of thinking about it. You know, I've only ever lived in collectives. Our children were both born in a collective house. The money that we got to purchase this land came from a collective lending society. And so it is possible to think beyond the eye. And I believe necessary because if we you know, at some future date, reparations happens and we get back our land and we get back resources and education and all the things that are, are due to us by virtue of what happened to our ancestors. If we still have a colonial mindset, I believe we'll just replicate those same oppressive structures. And so part of what this book encourages us to do is really reconsider um, 
what we take for granted in terms of how we approach the work. Yeah. So as you're saying that, so I, I so firmly believe in this and also was raised in a lot of places that a lot of communities that were really questioning this individualistic um, mindset. And um, and it's part of what I'm here to do in supporting Soulfire Farm. But I want to, it makes me think about this question of so many of the things that you're supporting and teaching through Soul Fire are really dismissed by American culture and really thought of as like alternative or weird or either because they're things that are demonized because they're associated with indigenous practices of people of color or they're just like counterculture alternative things. And I don't know, just how does that affect your work or how, how you, or does it affect your work is, is I guess what I should say. You know, maybe I'm not talking to the right folks, but surprisingly, I have not experienced people directly dismissing. I think it's embedded in the culture that there are roadblocks to what we're trying to do. But by and large, we've been very affirmed and thanked for saying the thing that needed to be said, that Mm. folks were trying to figure out how to articulate or doing the thing that folks were longing for. Um, And so... I feel I feel super supported by our community. You know, obviously we have all we we continue to have all these laws on the books that are anti survival. You know, farm workers in this country have a whole separate section or they're actually excluded from the National Labor Relations Act and the Fair Labor Standards Act. So they don't have minimum wage if they work on a farm with less than seven people and then have a different minimum wage. You know, child labor protections are much less for farm workers. We have the reduction in SNAP benefits or food stamps. So all of these structures exist that are are counter to what we're trying to do. But within our community, and and by community, I mean the you know tens of thousands of people that have heard about and been touched by Soul Fire's work, by and large, there's this kind of sigh, and, sigh of relief. Of like, thank you. This is what we've been trying to say and what we've been trying to move toward. Mm-hmm. Yes. And um, <laughs> what I've observed of, uh, is and I think many of us who are close to you have observed is is how much people look to you as this light of like having these answers and come to you for you and this whole community, but that you really are held up as kind of the the pinnacle of what is the leader of what is happening here. And how how is that impacting you? And I mean, I know that's a huge question, but I think it's important when we look at like really revolutionary leaders throughout history and the the weight and burden that's put on them and the importance of not burning them out you know and and can you share a little about what maybe both the things that are amazing about it and the things that are challenging about being in that role that question is so real Tegan um Yeah, I think that because many of us have been raised in such an individualistic culture, there's a yearning for a hero. Um, There's a yearning to make a celebrity out of an activist uh, to center this one person as the answer, you know, and so as our our work becomes more um, gains more exposure, the request for us to do everything from, you know, lead a training, which we're certainly happy to do when we can to answer people's personal questions about what they should be doing with their life or to, or their fashion question, you know, we get, you know, we get a hundred emails every couple of hours um, asking for us to do things. And, and then also people being really disappointed or upset when we can't show up for them in that way. Um, And what I, what I often say and what I want to encourage people to do is there's probably a black farmer like in your County 
who has no support, like no resources, no one's asking them for advice. And so to really decentralize the way we think about expertise, like I don't want to diminish the power of what's happening at Soulfire. Obviously, it's my life work. I believe in it. I think our team is awesome. You know, all of us, not just me, you know, Larissa and Demaris and Letitia and Ceci and Olive and Jess and Amani and Jonah, like everyone is doing the most. Um, but we're certainly not the only people and we're not the first and we won't be the last. And mm-hmm. and I think we do ourselves a disservice when we center certain folks too much um, because we diminish our ability to see that light within ourselves or within our neighbors, our community. Um, imagine it's something special and beyond our reach. And it also makes those folks who are getting all that attention, it makes our lives impossible. So <laughs> like we're not sleeping, we're not eating, we're not, you know, we're trying to take care of everybody and that's completely unsustainable. And I've I've watched so many movement leaders um, become martyrs in one way or another, <laughs> either through overwork or, or actually, you know, losing their lives. And I don't think that that's necessary for us to be the sacrifice for the change we need to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think this book is part of manifesting that vision, which is putting so much of this into the book. And I think it's really brilliant the way you did this because it is so accessible. Like nothing is more than a couple pages long, like mm-hmm. each section. So people can flip through, even if you're not reading it cover to cover, people can flip through and be like, oh, here's an amazing, inspiring story. Oh, here's like four examples of how to do soil remediation. And it's everything from like a crop rotation planting schedule (laughs) to how to do herbal baths and so I think that like putting this all into the book is really helping to man is helping to share that wisdom outside of yourself um you launched this book this year at the bugs conference and I know that that community was really pivotal to to bringing and accumulating all of this knowledge can you talk a little bit about how the book was received there and kind of how that community contributed to creating this and maybe say what Bugs is. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So Bugs is the Black Urban Growers Conference, but it includes rural farmers too. Um, and that was the conference that came out of the conversation I had with Karen Washington um, at the Northeast Organic Farmers Association when she said, we will have our own conference one day. And she started that in 2010, uh, brings together over 500 Black farmers every year. For me, it's really a family reunion more than a conference. It's about, you know, building with mentors and, and elders there. Uh a couple of incredible things that happened. Uh, one is I got to hear from Dorothy and Philip Barker, who started some of the first food hubs in the entire United States. They call them packing sheds, but it's the idea is that farmers bring together their produce and crops, and then they can get one truck and take that truck up to Chicago and sell it to the churches. And so it's a way of combining uh, the harvest of the land in order to get a better price or, or access markets that you couldn't access on your own. And their elders now, you know, they're getting ready to pass on their farm, but they were telling us stories about how they raised their children, um, not giving them allowance, but having them sell eggs to the neighbors and and advice about about how we really need to instill that work ethic and those hard skills into the next generation. And I can't even tell you just how valuable it is because we... I don't know why, but we live in a very age segregated society where we don't have the opportunity to hear that wisdom. And Mr. Rayford, who's a farmer, was saying that his his first entire crop of trees completely died because he didn't take the time to ask his grandmother what grew well on the soil. You know, so I think we lose a lot when we don't have the elders. And then the babies were there, too. You know, my godson, Omo Coyote Fashiro Lublin, was there. And I asked the audience when I was doing the keynote, 
you know, how many of you are black and love the earth? And he just stood up with like two hands in the air, like I'm black and I love the earth. And so to have that whole range of the community present mm. um, was really affirming. And of, of course, folks loved the book. They bought all the copies, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it was great. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you just mentioned the asking the elders for wisdom and support and guidance. And um, one thing I saw in the book was kind of helping people with different ways to start a farm. And that you said this thing about how you started Soulfire, like going out and feeling like you have to blaze your own path and, and get this land, but but that you had another suggestion for people about other ways they could start farms that are maybe a little less difficult. Can you share? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Starting things from scratch is really difficult. <laughs> and there are so many black farmers, particularly in the Southeast, who are getting older and wanting to pass on their farms and their children and grandchildren might not be interested. And so we are working together with SAFON, the Southeast African American Farmers Organic Network, to create a North-South lands link so that this returning generation of black and brown farmers can link up with and support elders in the South and carry on uh, the agricultural legacy on those particular parcels of land. And I think that Sometimes we get caught in sort of pioneer mentality that we need to always be starting something new and be in charge and not collaborate with each other, you know, connected to individualism and more healing and transformation can take place when we look around and see what's already happening and how we can plug in um, and align our vision with the vision of others in our community. Yeah, to, to pick up on that, can you talk about the color of food map and, and maybe some other things that alumni of your Black and Latinx training program are, are up to? Sure. So the color of food map, that was put out by Tasha Bowens, who's not an alum, but is a comrade and has some great pictures in the book. And she was attempting to help us connect with each other as black and brown farmers and so put projects uh you know, on the map across the nation. And that inspired us to create the reparations map. And this was the idea of Viviana Moreno, who is a BLFI alum and one of the founders of the Caratumbo Farm Co-op in Chicago, Illinois. And she was saying, you know, one day, you know, we'll get our government reparations. We'll keep working on that. But in the meantime, there's a lot of folks who are inspired to begin healing um, those historical wrongs and want to share their land and share their resources. So can we create a database or something? And I took that idea and ran with it and asked our alumni and other folks in our network to put their projects on a map and ask for what they need. And so far we've had over 12 farmers receive land and or tools capital uh, for their farms, including the Harriet Tubman Freedom Farm in North Carolina, uh, including uh, the indigenous eco-village in Florida, which is helping people rematriate to their ancestral lands and many other projects. So that's mm. been really exciting. Cool. Where can people find that map if they want to connect and help? Yeah. Uh, folks can find the map at soulfirefarm.org under the support page. Okay. Excellent. And what kind of things can people do to support Soulfire Farm? <laughs> what, I mean, <laughs> they can donate money, but are there other things that people can can do to support yeah, definitely. So a really fun project, because folks ask that a lot, and it's a fair question, is we did a survey of our alumni and other folks in what we're calling the returning generation of black farmers and asked them, what are the barriers for you? What are the policy barriers, the resource barriers, and, compi and compiled a whole document of action steps. And so uh, folks can know what legislation to vote for. They can know, you know the best ways to support. And again, if you go to soulfirefarm.org under support, there's a take action mm -hmm. and our platform is there. And we ask that people 
you know, find that intersection of what's needed and what really makes them come alive because there's so many correct ways to contribute. That's wonderful. Is there anything else that you want to share about this work <laughs> and all the all the things being asked of you or all the things that you're doing here? Um, just that I love you, Tegan, and I'm so grateful that you're taking the time to ask these really thoughtful and loving and caring questions um, about this work that that's heart work. You know, I really believe that the ancestors and the Orisha and all the forces of the universe have been calling us to return um, to a truer and wiser way of living in relationship to the earth. Um, so this is sacred work. You know, this isn't just about, I don't know, measurable outcomes. It's really about about healing and liberation and truth. Um, and I, I know that you see that. And I really appreciate you asking mm. questions that get at that deeper truth. Mm. Thank you. I absolutely have so much faith in that and, and think that that is really what we need to do to heal in this world. Like there's all kinds of practical fixing that needs to be done with policies and other things. But if we're not approaching that stuff with healing and, and heart work, we're not going to heal the divide between people who want to be killing each other mm -hmm. or one group that white people who want to be <laughs> killing people of color or Jewish people or any other exactly. people. And if we don't actually approach that from the heart, it will just continue. So, Ashe. Thank you, Leah. Thank you, Tegan. This book is amazing. I think it is really pivotal and um, just an absolutely incredible resource. So thank you for all of the hard work that you did and all of the thousands of people's brilliance and generations that, that contributed to making it what it is. Mm. Thank you. I'm Tegan Engel, and you're listening to The Table Underground. To learn more about farmer training opportunities for people of color, the Northeast Farmers of Color Network, Action Steps for Food Sovereignty, the Reparations Map, and so much more, go to soulfirefarm.org. You can also find a lot more info, links, and pictures at thetableunderground.com. Listen to past shows on our site or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow us on all the social medias. You're listening to WNHH 103.5 FM Community Radio.